Hello and welcome to the week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison, your co-host, and joining me, as always, is the great, the glorious, the magnificently best-selling Australian author of QAnon and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, Van Batham. How are you, Van? Well, I'm pretty good, Ben Davison, because we are together. I know. It's a rare and special treat, hopefully less rare as the future unfolds. Thank you, everyone who has gotten vaccinated, wears masks and obeys social distancing for enabling Ben and I to be back together. It's so good. Yes, and today we have a very special episode of The Week on Wednesday. Yes, it's a special one. Because we decided that it was time that we actually talked to some other people on the show. Yeah, we thought we'd mix it up. We have had a few communications from people going, talk to this person, talk to that person. We want you to go more in depth. And as Ben and I want to make sure this show stays nice and fresh, we thought we would do a bit of an online special. So we are going to talk about the impact of job insecurity and insecure work on people who have caring responsibilities. We will talk more broadly about the overall impact of insecure work, but specifically we want to drill down into what it means for those Australians, the many hundreds of thousands, millions of Australians who have either children to care for, a relative with a disability or aging parents that they have to look after. And obviously this is very personal for us because as everybody who listens to the show knows, I'm caring for my elderly mother at the moment who's going through cancer treatment it's a very demanding and difficult time and I'm really lucky that because I hold down seven different subcontracting careers at once that I have a bit of flexibility to process her care and commitments but it's hard it's really really hard on me and on Ben and of course I wrote a piece for The Guardian recently talking about some research that had been commissioned by the SDA the SDA is the union that represents retail workers in Australia And the SDA found that there are 200,000 Australian workers who are out of work and looking for work, who want to work, but who can't because the workplace does not accommodate their caring responsibilities, whether that cares for elderly relatives, relatives with disabilities, children or anyone else. And this is a massive problem. And of course, I published this article and it went completely viral. And I was contacted by hundreds of people who were like, I want to work, it's so hard, like I don't understand why there's no flexibility, I don't understand why I'm being made to choose between my family. It's so difficult. If 200,000 individuals are going through that, that means 200,000 households are going through that. And it doesn't have to be this way, does it, Ben? No, it doesn't. And I think it's been really telling how many workers have come forward and told their stories on various platforms to various unions about the difficulties of rostering and not having secure rosters and not knowing what hours you're going to be working. So even if you've got a job and you're in this kind of insecurity, it's really, really hard. So today we're going to talk to three people who come from sort of different parts of the union movement. We're going to talk to Michelle O'Neill. Michelle O'Neill is, of course, the president of the ACTU. She also used to be the national secretary of the Textile, Clothing, Footwear, Union of Australia. Union of Australia. TCFUA. The TCFUA. And Michelle is has also been a long-time campaigner for international union rights and workers' rights and has travelled all over the world to do things like advocate for wage floors and, and working conditions. She's quite amazing. We're also going to talk to Julia Fox, who is the National Assistant Secretary of the SDA, which is the Retail Workers' Union that commissioned 
that piece of research from the University of New South Wales. And the stories that just talking to Julia offline that workers tell about things like oppo shifts, we're going to talk more about that, I'm sure. You know, it's extraordinary when you get down to the way people have to live their lives through insecure work. Really looking forward to talking to Julia about that. And of course, we're going to talk to Tim Pedersen as well. So Tim Pedersen is from the United Workers Union that represents workers in all kinds of industries. But what Tim has been working on has been using the online platforms, the apps that corporations and businesses often use to exploit and you know create problems for their staff to keep them unorganised, unpaid and in trouble. Uh, what Hospo Voice has done, Hospo Voice is a obviously a hospitality worker campaign within the UWU, has been using platforms to organise workers. To every action, there will be an equal and opposite reaction, and Tim Pedersen as an organiser is all over it. So he's got some really, really interesting insights to share with us about the hospitality sector. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking to him about how they're using platforms, how they're organising workers in what is a really hard space really insecure work and the impact that has on caring as well. And there'll be a little bit of discussion, I'm sure, about what the pandemic has done in this space as well. So, And Ben and I will be open about this. We have skin in this game because Ben is a veteran of working in retail and I am obviously a veteran of working in hospitality. So these are issues that we understand individually and intimately and we will always fight the corner of retail and hospitality workers from that experience. Absolutely. And I think we're going to say it right up front in this episode, and I'm sure we'll say it after we've had the conversations as well. Join, Join your, your union. Australianunions.org.au slash wow. And that's our special week on Wednesday link. If you're not a member of a union, what are you waiting for? It's a tax deduction. So it ultimately won't cost you anything, but will make you likelier to have better work conditions and better pay. And we're joined by Michelle O'Neill, president of the ACTU, and obviously a very good friend of both myself and Van. Michelle, it's so great to have you with us today. How are you? So pleased to be able to join you, Ben and Van. It's fantastic. We wanted to talk to you, especially in the context of lockdown ending in Melbourne, about the workplace and about the workplace that Australians are going back into. Because obviously we saw the survey that came out with the academics who I believe are from the University of New South Wales talking about retail workers and the fact that workplace conditions for retail workers mean that people who work casual because they have care commitments can't meet them. And that was quite eye-opening, I think, for a lot of people. But now that we've had these bizarre 18 months of at home, at work, what does the workplace look like that we're returning to? I think that it depends on the sort of job you do and the sort of work you do. We know that this pandemic hasn't treated everyone the same. And so one of the things we know is that if you're an insecure work, if you're a casual or contract or gig or labour hire job, you are more likely to lose your job altogether or to lose significant hours and shifts. And so coming back to work with the opening up is, is unclear whether you're going to get a job how many hours or uh, rosters you're going to get is often at the whim of the employer. And then, of course, there's workers whose job's been there, but now it's that issues to do with whether they're going to be back in the 
formal workplace, whether they're going to be working from home or a combination of the two. There's issues that people are concerned about rightly to do with their safety and making sure that in returning to uh, workplaces outside the home, that those workplaces have got things properly set up, that we're not putting workers at risk. And for a lot of workers, that's unclear and there's a job to be done then there with your unions, of course, trying to make sure that they're safe. Michelle, the Who Cares campaign is really quite a powerful set of stories around what's happening in retail with the job insecurity and how that's impacting on care relationships. Can you talk to us about how that fits in from an ACTU Australian Union's perspective around the broader issues around job insecurity? Well, this is shocking, this research that's come out of the SDA with the Who Cares campaign, Ben and Van, because what it shows is really the human cost of insecure work and unpredictable work. And what comes out so powerfully is the impact of having no predictable hours and pay on your life and how that impacts particularly on women the majority of workers in this industry are women but also of course as well as being the majority in the industry they're the majority in insecure work in the industry and of course they do the majority of caring work that's unpaid and so trying to juggle that when you don't know when you're going to work next. You don't know what roster you're on and whether it's going to change. And what we heard in the survey was how all the flexibility is one-sided. It's the boss's flexibility, you know, that you think you've got a shift coming up and you know your roster and then at really short notice, sometimes literally when you turn up, it changes. And that just doesn't work with having a life where you've got responsibility for caring. It's absolutely unbelievable. And I think one of the things that came out in that survey, which was really confronting, was that there's a health cost that comes with a workplace like this. And we wondered if you could talk to us about what we're hearing from individuals and from families about the effects on their mental health and about the effects on their physical health, about being obliged to work this way. It's really bosses keeping workers hungry and hungry in all its senses, not just literally hungry, but hungry for hours, hungry for shifts, hungry for security, like the power of imbalance of that is one that I think is incredibly damaging in terms of people's stress levels and mental health. And of course, the other impact it has is that one of the things that makes us feel better in a workplace is when we can build more power back in an uneven relationship by organising and working with others. And that's the other thing, that's the other vicious element of insecure work is that the deadening effect it has on your sense of being able to join together with others, organise and unionise in a way that pushes back. We've put out some survey results ourselves this week from the ACTU about sexual harassment and safety and insecure work. And if you're an insecure worker, and even more so if you're a woman in an insecure job, you're more likely to be harassed in the first place, but also you are much less likely to report it or tell anyone because you're fearful of the consequences. These are very stark issues issues of sexual harassment in the workplace, job insecurity, 
people who have relationships where they can't see each other. So how do we fix some of these issues? Well, I absolutely believe we can fix it, Ben, and and it gets back to organising and power. And uh, I think there's an opportunity leading up to this federal election to really make this issue something that people see and believe can change because there's nothing worse than hopelessness. It is an increasing Americanization of our labour market, but we can turn that around with the right policies, the right laws, and of course, the right campaigns to win those. Changing the government is not the only answer to this because we have to win this campaign. We have to make sure that people understand that it's possible to change this, but that we have to fight for it, organise for it, campaign together for it, and that that campaign doesn't stop until we see those changes in the workplace, in workers' lives. Yeah, it's so good having you on the show, Michelle. Like, it's awesome to have you. Obviously, we're with you 100%. Michelle, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. We know how busy you are. I just wanted to say we want to encourage our listeners too who are joining unions and getting active, you know, to put their hands up, to become delegates, to get involved in the decision-making and take leadership roles. Yeah, we can do this together. Thanks so much, Ben and Dan. Gee, that was such an interesting conversation with Michelle. It's such a macro level issue, but there are things that can be done, right, Van, like this. We no, can make it change. doesn't have to be like this. And the fact is that there is a national campaign to stop it from being like this. Absolutely. And again, you know, it just goes to show that the, the power of the collective can make things happen. Really keen now to talk to Julia Fox. Julia! We're joined now by Julia Fox, who is the National Assistant Secretary of the SDA, the Union for Retail Workers. Julia, welcome to the show. How are you? Good, Ben. Very well. Julia, this episode, we're talking to people about some of the research that your union, the SDA, has done. Julia, what we're really interested in is, like, what drove the research? Were you shocked by what came back? Absolutely. And it hit a nerve. I think what started it for us was some announcements towards the end of last year from both the government and the opposition around childcare. Just looking at some of the childcare policies, it was a question in our mind about, you know, how that would impact our members in terms of any childcare announcement, because with the way they work in non-standard hours of work, it's an industry that's 24-7, do they actually use childcare? And it's very structured. I think one of our members said childcare requires regular bookings, but employers don't offer regular hours. So there's this mismatch. And we thought we could talk anecdotally, but we actually need to get some data to support or get a better understanding of what childcare arrangements people use. And so then that sort of leapt frog. <laughs> we kind of moved into this space where we were saying, well, we don't just need to look at childcare, we need to look at all forms of care. And so it's elder care, caring for someone with a disability, long-term illness. So we expanded it. And then we thought, well, childcare doesn't happen on its own. Your needs and your requirements around care very much intersect with your workplace. So how does a workplace support, or in this case, it turns out it doesn't very well support, your care responsibility? So that's where we put the two together of, of actually asking questions about the way you're rostered to work, how that impacts your care choices. Throughout the sort of pandemic We've heard a lot about retail workers and a lot of politicians telling us that retail workers have been the heroes of the pandemic. What this research suggests is that they're being treated like anything other than heroes. Why is this mismatch between the rhetoric 
and the reality for workers. Why is that happening? Well, I think it's about employers investing in their people and you needed to have a decent job. And I'm, in some ways, the pandemic has, you've seen more conversations about Um, what a decent job looks like and this research is you know spot on for timing because it actually shows us that the way people are working um, and the way they're trying to manage their lives this is really challenging for people to manage for our industry what we've seen is that we're actually looking at a quite permanent workforce technically Um, a lot of part-timers and full-timers they're about 70 percent of the workforce and maybe 30 to 35 percent are casual so We've ended up with this model of part-time employment that really gets to the heart, I think, of what's going on for many, many workers is constant changing of roster. But then you've got this this part-time model of hours where you're offered these really low base hours. You then have to kind of bid for work and try and get extra shifts to make up what looks like a normal job because these hours might be eight hours a week. All you've got is an eight-hour-a-week guarantee. You're not even guaranteed to get the same day of the week that you're going to be working. Julia, with the survey and some of the responses that came back, I've seen uh, some of the case studies that came in and they are shocking. Hmm. What were some of the case studies that you got back from the survey that really stuck with you? One that stands out is a mum of an 11-year-old and her husband has terminal cancer, so she needs to be at home at night. But she's like, work won't allow me to be. Like, is it absolutely necessary at Coles or Woolworths that that worker is there at night time when she's got an 11-year-old and her husband's got terminal cancer? Like, I just find that just excruciating. The other one that stands out for me is um, one of the parents spoke about her mother-in-law giving up her paid job to help mind the, the grandkids. And I, you know, spent a lot of time in the superannuation space as well and and the gender inequality aspect of it. And I just find that really challenging as well when you think about that mother-in-law giving up her paid job, so that's her income stream, that impacts her retirement outcome. And then you add to that that I think about that from the worker who's asked her mother-in-law to help or the mother-in-law knows that she's required, you know, needed to help the family. And the guilt that you must feel when you've put your mother-in-law in that situation as well not by choice because there's no choice in it, and just this compounding feeling of, of how that must rest on your shoulders. You asked your mum-in-law to give up her paid job, but then also I can't actually tell you when I'm going to require you to be able to help them because my roster's never the same. So I'm asking my mother-in-law to be available again 24-7 when work decides to call me at 8 o'clock and require me to be there the next day. So that stands out because it just, to me, that case shows the ripple effect of these practices. This is not just about retail employers, it's having this a really long tail. That's it's really ripple effect of impact. It's impacting kids, it's impacting families. I reckon it's impacting relationships between couples when we see twelve percent of families manage their informal care by working the exact opposite shift to their partner. Wow, I bet that has no flow on problems at all. Like there'd be absolutely no family dysfunction that resulted from that situation. That's right. That's right. In family breakdown, in family violence and in and kids who don't get to see the family unit operate as a family unit. Great. Fantastic. That sounds like a system that works for everybody apart from not. And then, Van, add it to there when it sends me a little bit mad, reading all the flexible work policies they have. <laughs> you know, the shiny, glossy company reports, sustainability reports, WGIA reports, so the Workplace Gender Equality Agency reports, none of them line up with this data. Julia, the week on Wednesday, you know, we cover a lot of big issues. We talk about 
issues that impact people's lives. I think this episode is going to really resonate with a lot of people listening. And obviously, to have so many people respond to a survey in such a short period of time and for the responses to be so consistent, there's clearly a current, really, of issue in this sector and and right across the economy, as you say, it's having knock-on effects in early childhood and other, other parts as well. We really like to leave people with a, a positive sense of what they can do. What would you tell our listeners they can do? How can we how can we fix this problem? A couple of things I'd say. I think as a society, we actually need to stop, recognise and actually value care and I'm not sure we do. Uh, in fact, we don't. And so I think we need a broader community conversation about the value of care. And again, this survey data shows that retail workers are providing sort of double the national average in terms of care. So they are also providing a huge amount of unpaid care into our economy that we all benefit from and we need to recognise it and value it and respect it and we don't at the moment. I think we need an enforceable right to care. So stemming once you recognise care, then you need a right to be able to provide care. And at the moment we have this flexible work arrangements um, model in the Fair Work Act, which is really a right to ask a question it's not a right to care and we need to move away from this concept of flexible work and just talk about the right and the need to care for people for our members we need stable predictable secure rosters and I would say that's something that other sectors you know would also probably be very interested in so we need security stability of rosters and we also we often talk about a living wage but we actually need to talk about living hours as well because you can have a high hourly rate but if you're only getting eight hours a week doesn't mean much. And I also think the last one is probably we need to increase personal leave and carers leave. It's not enough. 10 days is not enough and it's particularly not enough. This is more gendered. Women are using all their personal leave up. They're using all their annual leave. They're using all their long service leave to care for others because the workplace doesn't provide enough carers leave. There is a bit of an opportunity in my mind in that COVID has presented us and shown us that we need to make some changes for decent work. Everyone's talking about building back better. But we need to build back better with the essential building blocks and the ones I've outlined just there, they're essential to building back better. It changes our society and refocuses us on the value we need to place in care and allowing workers to manage their lives and then allowing workers to fully participate in life because at the moment our members don't get to do that. Well, that's brutal. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't have ended on you told me to end on a positive but no it's, it is we've got to change people need to, to access life like we keep calling about it we're like this there's no access to life I can I get access to life but the, our members don't it's awful it's a bit that struck me Look, the thing is, if you have, and I say this from experience, if you have caring obligations, like I do with my mum, like it's already pretty hard. And the idea that workplaces wouldn't accommodate that, but actively punish you for it is extraordinary. Yeah. So the the feeling then on top of the pressure you're already under, when people are going out of their way to punish you for that as well, and you think, all I'm trying to do is look after my mum in the best way I can, which is physically really tough, mentally really tough. And then your workplace leaves this anxiety about whether they'll get rid of you, that uncertainty, will I get the sack next time? I think one of the, because I, I wrote about this for The Guardian about your survey in one of the pieces I did recently, and I noticed that the employer groups were like, oh, yeah, we'll probably have to talk to the union. So what do you think employer groups are realising? Because we all know they never want to talk to the union unless they kind of have to talk to the union. What do you think is bringing 
them around what are the factors on their side that should give workers hope that there's space to make change here? Yeah, because the hope is important. And I, I even had one of our members say to me, because I was taking her through some of this research she was presenting on her experience as a retail worker with this stuff, and she said, I hadn't even put all this together in terms of, so she became a union delegate because she was discriminated at work for breastfeeding. So that's why she became a union member and delegate. She works all these late nights, so she works four till midnight. Monday through Thursday and every second weekend. So she gets to put her kids to bed one night a week, every second week. That's it. And anyway, and she was saying, look, I just, I think the hope thing is people don't even kind of know this is their life, right? It's hard and they know it's hard, but how we find solutions for them that are going to make it better. There's some low hanging fruit, but there's also some clear structural things that need to change. And, and we will be very heavily engaging with all the employers in this data set. And we need that engagement one-on-one with the employers to say, well, this is what's actually going on in your workplaces. We need engagement with political uh, and policy changes. There's childcare affordability, which will help some of our members as well. I don't think the answer is 24-7 childcare. Uh, That's not the answer. (laughs) What we need is rosters that work for carers in various stages of their lives. Absolutely. It it has been a a really eye-opening experience going through the report uh, as I think Van said earlier, you know, I was a retail worker many, many years ago, part-time. I'm happy to say it was in a Telstra shop. I think I was a member of the SDA at the time. And yeah, it was a real face-to-face roster negotiation, you know, and I didn't have caring responsibilities and some of the workers did and, and the manager really accommodated them. It really now seems to have totally changed. So it's good to hear though that there are really clear plans of action that you and the union have about how we can improve this situation. Absolutely. Yeah, because there's no point doing the research if you don't have a plan of how you need to get things changed. Uh, And there's a lot that needs to be changed here. And, you know, it's from many angles, I think. Um, You know, even again with my super hat on, the retirement outcomes for women, the gender equality aspect of this research is, again, quite concerning about what's going on for women in Australian workplaces it's pretty average and then it's our industrial system that needs much better protections for workers and for unions and you know it's about making sure kids of the future that we're supposed to be raising as a community and a society have some opportunities in life that's the other part yeah that'd so, be nice that would be yeah what a good aim <laughs> even just some parental contact or yeah. experience of a family unit did you see the research last week that also came out around uh, a million kids, you know, missing yeah. out on food and things? And I thought, yeah, it matches up exactly with our report in terms of the poverty levels. And and people, so many people commented on missing out on not being able to shop and afford groceries. So imagine, like, you're packing other people's groceries and you can't afford your own because your workplace has made it near impossible for you to get decent hours of work. Like, there's something really wrong. <laughs> We've got to fix it. Yes, and yet I saw they were advertising for Christmas helpers the other day. So apparently the absolutely brutal hellhole, which is the Christmas retail work experience, something I have, of course, personally experienced um, and which put me in hospital because I got so sick and I was so exhausted. And this is when I was working in England where there are, you know, the labour laws around casuals are appalling and they're addicted to cheap labour and you will work until midnight one night and find yourself rusted on at 7 o'clock the next morning. Yep. Which mm. is, I've got to say, Awful. horrific, physically unsustainable, even if you are young and healthy, 
but you know Christmas like the, the Christmas retail experience where people go mad and they're short like it's overcrowded yeah customer abuse and the rest of it and they were being advertised as Christmas helpers and I'm just like you'd want to be a magical elf to get through that really (laughs) but these jobs are not being offered to people who want more hours they're not being those hours are not being allocated to people who are already there they want to bring in what like a, a fresh generation of workers to humiliate exploit and torture fantastic yeah and then you know the cost of business because I look at the business risk of that model and I think you're advocating and forcing churn. Like you're, you're yeah. making people leave the workplace. That's costly. Like as a business strategy, if I was an investor, I'd be looking at that and going, hmm, is that a really sound business practice? Isn't there risk in that in the levels of churn you're happy to accept? Um, and what does that mean for your business? Because it's one, it really does, uh, there's a real compliance question. Um, the other point you touched on around health and safety, um, I'm really looking forward to, uh, mental health policy ref- referencing um, rosters and how they may impact staff because this mental health focus that employers have is very outward, it's not inward, and you can see the impact this work system and these workplaces are having on the mental health of workers. It's huge, it's profound, and employers need to be focusing inwards on what they're actually doing, not saying here's a great referral service, you must be stressed. Let's ask why you're stressed. You're stressed because you change your roster every single week. That's why you're stressed. Or I'm trying to look after my elderly mum and I can't. I wonder if there are intersecting factors around mental health, Julia. Like, wouldn't that be crazy? That'd be crazy. I, lo- I just it? love it. I love the I love the lip service paid to to oh yeah, we acknowledge mental health week and yeah. Are you okay, Day? Oh, are you okay? I look. Yeah. Are you no? Well, I'm not. So, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to provide me with childcare or any kind of rostering that supports my care responsibilities for my mother? I might be one of those women who has both ch- children to care for and elderly relatives to care for as well. Who's in that particularly wonderful generational experience? Yeah, and look, the generation. And again, they're about you know some of our deeper conversations with workers on that. And between the ages of forty and sixty, the pressure and the load on women in that age group is like it's unbearable what they're experiencing in terms of care and they are the sandwich generation of carers between kids and sometimes teenagers and then parents elderly parents and sometimes both sets of parents if they're in a couple relationship they're often it falls to them to manage the mother-in-law not or the father-in-law um so the, the, the level of care responsibility again unpaid unrecognized outcomes in terms of their poverty levels when they do retire at whatever age they're able to retire because we have lots of people in retail still in their 70s working because of the retirement outcomes for women um you know you just add all that on and you're thinking oh my god like this is just so much on people and there is there needs to be an accountability um, of workplaces who are cost shifting this care onto workers they get the benefit of it they get their worker there on at 5 a.m on a saturday morning or at midnight on sunday they need to start contributing. Absolutely. Yeah. We're with you. We're 100% on board. 100%. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we hear from workers all the time uh, who have these, these issues, um, certainly not in the same kind of quantum as the research that you've pointed out, but it's been amazing to hear these stories and really amazing to know that, you know, there's action underway to make people's lives better you know we we often talk on the week on wednesday about why people should join their union and i think you know julia this is clearly one of those uh 
if ever you were going to join your union, this is a good reason to do so, right? As you say, that delegate who was being discriminated against got involved and and we love to see that. We love to see people go, yeah, I can can be part of the change in my workplace and my life. Yeah, that's right. And look, next year we've announced, but we are keen to host a working care summit because it's, you know, it's going to take a whole community. It's going to take governments. It's going to take employers. It's going to take our whole, you know, a holistic approach is what's needed. So we're looking to have a working care summit next year, which I just wanted to call out because I think that's about bringing people together to say, you know what, because there actually is lots of people working on various care things or whether it's early childhood education and care or it's um, aged care. There's there's lots of people who are saying, hang on, this care piece is, is not quite right. And we're just adding to that in terms of a really robust data set that looks at the working lives of retail workers. But I really think bringing people together to say, okay, what's the roadmap to the solutions? And because it's multifaceted, the solutions we need are a number of them in different areas. So um, I think that will be really important because this conversation just needs to keep going. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. We really do believe it's a hugely important issue and something both Van and I have had some limited experience with in the past and such important work that, that you're doing and that the SDA is doing and, and we'll keep an eye out for that when an ear out for that summit and yeah we'll keep this conversation going absolutely yeah that's great well it's really nice to be here with you both um so thank you it's amazing the work the SDA are doing like to identify this issue to get deep down into both the personal stories but also what Julia was saying about companies have policies around family friendly and flexible working conditions but they're not implementing them van isn't that just striking it is it's absolutely appalling especially when you consider like the power of retail culture in regional communities as well like sometimes uh, retail is one of the most important employers to a regional economy we know that's true out where we live and so being able to drive a culture of change uh, through the retail sector actually creates Better, better working conditions, better living conditions and better social conditions in the regional economies where things like care services can be stretched really thin because of lack of government investment. And it's great to see the SDA engaging with those employers who want to do the right thing because if we can come together and make this work for everyone, it's actually going to be better off. You know, it'd be very, very interesting to hear how this plays out in, in hospitality and what Hospo Voice is doing in, in a sector that is so often lumped in with retail but has its own needs, right? I think that's a very elegant segue to introducing Tim Pedersen. And we're joined now by Tim Pedersen from Hospo Voice, the United Workers' Union's digital union for hospitality workers. Tim, welcome and thanks so much for coming on the show. No worries and thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Look, we're talking in this episode about the pressures that people face through insecure work and how it impacts their caring responsibilities. We've heard from some retail workers, but this is a big issue in hospitality too, isn't it? Absolutely. I suppose hospitality has some of the highest levels of job insecurity of almost any industry. Four out of five workers are casual. And there's this myth that's pushed by employers and their representatives that workers prefer casual work and it kind of suits their lifestyle. But what we see is that job insecurity basically underpins and accelerates all the worst problems in this industry from wage theft to sexual harassment to the spread of COVID. And 
workers really struggle to have any power over their jobs, you know, and the impact it has on their personal lives is, is really extreme. We're running a, a survey at the moment, you know, and we've spoken to about 400 workers about rostering and insecure work. And we hope to speak to hundreds more over the next few months. But what we know is that four out of five workers in hospitality are casual and surprise, surprise, similar numbers of workers are saying that their rosters vary wildly from week to week. They receive rosters with less than 24 hours notice, sometimes like 11 o'clock at night, the night before they're due to start the following day. Workers being treated like this tap that just gets turned off and on and damn the consequences on their lives and their livelihoods. And what are you hearing the impacts are on their lives? You know, What does it do to someone who gets told at 11 o'clock the night before they need to be at the cafe, at a restaurant, for a a 7am open, how do they juggle that with family or other caring responsibilities? These are not jobs that workers can count on. These dramatic shifts in pay and hours, you know, and the pay that they bring home from one week to, to the next. So I guess in a financial sense, they rack up, often rack up big credit card bills in those, those troughs between there aren't that many hours and, you know, you fall behind in rent and bills and maybe you turn to payday loans, you're getting second and third jobs. But like in terms of your personal relationships, um, how do you have a life in that context? How do you maintain strong relationships with your friends and family? How do you stay sane, you know, with this constant upheaval and gnawing insecurity? And in many cases, what workers are telling us is they can't. Extraordinary number of workers are saying unstable rosters are causing important relationships to break down. You know, these are partners and, you know, close friends that they just don't get to see, that they miss those kind of key social events, those um, anniversaries, those birthdays, those, you know, those family gatherings that are so important to keeping those important relationships alive. An enormous number of workers that we've spoken to have said unstable rosters have affected their mental health. Huge impact on mental health. Above 80% of workers are saying that it's affecting their mental health and the same for their physical health and well-being. Because when do you get to exercise when you're constantly kind of working all the time or you think, you know, you never know when you're going to have to work next? And, of course, going to work while you're sick is another thing that we're seeing. People just can't take time off to go, you know, even in the age of COVID, people are not able to take time off, you know, when they're sick. They're punished by their employers when they try. It's an interesting point you raise around the the mental and physical health issues of this instability. You say you're seeing people people are being punished for taking time off when they're sick. Even if it's unpaid time, they're still being punished? Absolutely. So, for example, you know, you've got one of the workers who we've spoken to. She told us she couldn't come in, in this case, because her daughter was sick, casual worker. The venue manager swore at her, cancelled her next shift, which was 13 hours. And then she later found out that she'd actually lost her job. And, you know, we're also hearing like workers say that people use shifts, bosses use shifts as a, you know, like in one case, employer would give a worker, workers in this venue, fewer or more shifts, depending on which they thought was worse punishment. The power employers, you know, have with casual work and insecure work is used in the most sociopathic of ways we're seeing, you know, this the sort of people are being ghosted off the roster if they ask for it to for a day off for family reasons or social reasons or or wanting to take time off because they're sick and thus ends their job. I mean, that, that's that's an incredible circumstance because we've heard of um, 
workers in, in other industries being told by text message that they're not getting any more shifts or not to bother coming back in. And this, this idea of ghosting seems to be coming through in other industries as well. Is it something that you think has increased over the last five years or is this a relatively new phenomenon or how has this come about? Because it seems like such a an un-Australian thing, you know, to to just use that kind of power and then cut off communications with a worker. I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear this. It's such a cowardly thing to do, I think, for employers, and it's such an easy thing for them to do, you know, to sort of remove from them them from the staff Facebook group, you know, where the shifts are are, are um, allocated, remove them from the WhatsApp group, you know, remove their login. Um, it is, and it often. It, I think in one of the examples we we exposed uh, at a Vietnamese uh, restaurant, in you know people, yeah, people were sacked via WhatsApp, and you just see that someone's name had been removed from the WhatsApp group, and it was sort of like this public execution. In everyone saw it, you know, after someone kind of asked a question that the boss didn't like, and it, yeah, it does seem to be getting more and more prevalent, and it's it's so insidious, and it really demands a sort of a collective response because. People do feel really powerless in those individual situations. That's a really interesting point you raise. What what can people do? You know, week on Wednesday we like to make sure people have a sense of hope and you know that people do make a difference. The the idea of, as you say, public executions of people's jobs is a pretty traumatic concept. But what what can people do in hospitality uh, to to address this issue? Yeah, well, I suppose it kind of the way that we think about it at Hospo Voice, which is, you know, we have created a digital union, an alternative model, um, because this is an industry that has been really hard to sort of organise in the way that unions are traditionally organised, which is around workplaces. So we've um, really tried to rethink what a union looks like in the digital age and in our and, and, and arm hospitality workers with some sort of some different kind of tools to help them put power back in their hands and and one of those things that we've developed is our Fairplate website which is a sort of a venue rating website one of the things we know about hospitality is that workers deal with feeling disposable and being treated like crap by moving to a different job um, but how do you know it's any better than the last job you know the boss is usually on their best behavior when you start the new job but with Fairplate we can crowdsource information about different venues and now now workers use this website fairplate.org.au to help them know which venues are worth you know where they should apply and which ones they should avoid and steer clear of because the employer treats them with you know contempt that you know they there is such extreme job insecurity there you know there's sexual harassment there's wage theft um, and this gives people that sort of that prior knowledge of what it's like before they even um, go go for that job, um, and that's that's quite empowering. And I guess the the public pressure and the sort of I suppose speaking out on an industrial scale, employers pay attention to to what workers are saying, and especially in an environment where there's a lot of competition for workers at the moment. You know that reputational damage is really bad for employers because it means that they're struggling to actually employ people because their past kind of follows them around now on our website. We're also developed Mobilize, which is a, a member tool, which is a sort of AI-powered app, 
which uses machine learning to give workers round-the-clock advice about their rights. And each time a question gets answered, the library of answers grows and grows and workers can get immediate answers to the to a bigger and bigger array of questions they might have. So what that means is that, you know, when, it, when a boss tells a worker, you have to supply a medical certificate, a casual worker, to take time off, which is completely untrue, workers can actually go and find an answer right on the spot in the break room uh, and then come back and say, actually, um, no, I don't, you know, or if they're at home, they can get that answer straight away rather than having to wait, you know, or go and do internet searching and or, you know, being called in for compulsory meetings or unpaid training. You know, people can get that information. It's right in their pocket on demand when they need it. That's great. And you're saying workers take up these these new tools and, and using them in the workplace? Absolutely. I mean, I think it, with Fairplate, we've had up to 10,000 separate reviews of venues. So it's a powerful tool and we're seeing patrons use this too and we encourage union members across Australia and people who support workers being treated with dignity and respect in the hospitality sector to use fairplate.org.au. When you're going out into the hospitality um, venues, check which ones are good and which ones treat their workers with dignity and respect. Um, uh, it's not that, that hard to do that anymore. That information is there. The workers are telling their stories and they need you to support them by choosing venues that that that, that, that treat them properly. Um, and mobilise, absolutely. We're seeing, we're seeing workers use this tool more and more and more and that kind of library of answers get bigger and bigger so that there's more and more support um, for the questions and the sort of the, the issues that workers are really need need immediate kind of answers to. No, so it kind of really, I guess what it's doing is there's always been this sort of um, the employers have really had the, often had the, um, the, 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 the power, you know, they've known, they've known or claimed to know that, you know, the rules and, and workers have often not known what their pay is, not known what their rights are, and this reverses that imbalance um, and that's a really exciting thing to see. It's fantastic, Tim. And we, in conversations uh, with the retail workers, you know, we were amazed that some of the companies involved in this insecurity and these terrible rostering arrangements were very large companies that kind of, uh, suggested and suggest in their annual reports and things that they're very family friendly and and the reality is we learned a new term called oppo shifts. Uh, are you seeing where you know two partners work in retail but they have to work opposite shifts in order to care for children or an elderly relative or something like that? Um, are you seeing any differences between large employers or chains in this in hospitality versus small employers? It's a good question. I think we're not necessarily seeing any great difference. I mean, I think from from where we're standing, we're seeing the use of casual and insecure work is really a consistent theme at every level of the industry um, and the lack of respect um, and the insecurity is, is just a, is a, is a feature across the industry. Um, so I, I, I don't think there's a, a vast difference between the smaller and the large you know, employers that, as far as we can tell, they're 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 just as bad as each other, really. Yeah, and this is this this oppo shifts concept um, that we heard about in retail. Is this something that hospitality workers are, are, are juggling as well? If both partners work in hospitality, are they, you know, is there culturally now a sort of expectation that they'll 
put the job first over the care of their children or elderly parents or anything like that? I'm not familiar with that um, that dynamic. I, I wouldn't necessarily exclude the possibility that it's it's happening, but um, I suppose one, you know, as I said, one indication would be the high number of workers. I think it's, you know, nudging 50% of people who said that they had, you know, they'd, their rostering arrangements had caused a relationship breakdown. So yep. it wouldn't surprise me if that's a thing, um, but we haven't sort of seen it sort of really emerge, you know, in, in great detail. Um, but it might be that, you know, that's something that we need to look more closely into. No, no, that's right. Look, really appreciate your, your time, Tim. I think you've outlined some, the, some of the problems that seems pretty uh pretty full-on problems you've got large amounts of mental health issues you've got public health issues you've got uh insecurity of employment insecurity of income a real power imbalance as well between the employers and the employees in terms of people who are not in hospitality um are there are there things that you would like the the general public uh, to do um, things that the general public should be demanding of the industry or of, of uh, leaders, community leaders around these issues. Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, I think I've already mentioned fair play, and that's something that we can that you know every person who visits and uses the hospitality industry, which basically is everybody, yep. uh, can do is to use that website to help sort of. Um, ensure that the employers that actually you know treat workers with respect that provide them with stable and secure hours are the ones that get rewarded with you know um more patronage um but i think we also kind of need to really support and push for changes to at a policy level and and um you know we've worked our union the united workers union um has worked with the victorian government on a casual sick leave scheme that the Victorian government really needs to be congratulated on. You know, it's being piloted. Um, it's soon to be piloted in Victoria uh, in in hospitality and other sectors. And this will give workers up to five sick days leave per year, casual workers. And, you know, this is this is this is a game changer for hospitality workers who who can't take sick leave. Um, even though who can't take either, you can't even take unpaid leave in many respects, mm. giving them sort of, um, sometimes they don't have the, you know, like they can't take the financial hit or it's just really hard for them to actually get that time off because employers punish them as we're very discussed. But um, we want to see things like this around the country and I guess we'd, you know, be keen to see it happen at a federal level too. Um, and I think this kind of, it is a quite a radical proposal, the idea that, you know, that we would give casual workers sick leave because it shows we don't have to accept that casual workers have no rights, that this idea of casual work is not fixed. You know, it is we can rethink what it looks like. Um, we don't have to kind of just accept the status quo. And so it really begs the question, what other changes could we make to casual work? And let's, you know, let's 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 think really big about that. What do we do to make rosters fairer, Tim? Sure. So um we're as part of you know we're we're surveying workers at the moment and we're talking trying to start a conversation with hospitality workers all across the country about like what to build a like a, a vision of what fair rostering looks like and hold employers to a higher union standard of behaviour. Um, 
and really call out employers that don't kind of meet that standard. And so what, what kinds of things can we include in that standard? And so these are some of the things that w- workers are saying they want to see, they, the changes they want to see at a, at a workplace level and really work together to kind of make it happen across the industry. And things like agreed start and finish time. So you can't tell a worker to just sit down for an hour before they start clocking on uh, or put them on a split shift because things are quiet. Um, so they sit around uh, for two hours or three hours and then resume work again. Um, fair notice so that new rosters are released, say, a week in advance, not the night before. Um, it seems reasonable, but it's so kind of unusual in many in many workplaces to, to actually get that basic kind of respect. Um and guaranteed minimum hours, so an agreed number of hours each week. So you don't get these huge peaks or particularly the troughs and the peaks because they're so hard to, means it's very hard to to balance those caring responsibilities and your social relationships when you just never know if you're going to be, it's going to be a feast or a famine and how do you pay bills as well and hold down a basic standard of living in that kind of context. So what we've seen with our wage theft campaigning against small venues and, and large um, like Rockpool is that hospital workers do hold real power. Their stories can be lethal. Um, and we've, we've done a lot of campaigning, you know, around wage theft and we want to start to really um start to sort of open up a new front uh, around rostering abuses and hold employers to to account for how for, for how they treat these treat their workers on the rostering front. The other thing I guess I wanted to mention is that we know that a lot of these changes are not going to really be made until we can build worker power um, in the industry in the hospitality industry. It's, it's been an industry that it has been that's really defied you know unions previously because um, maybe we've been focused more on on larger employers and, you know, workers in stable, secure jobs. Um, and hospitality is the sort of like the original gig gig industry. Um, so we, we need to rethink what a union looks like and we're on this journey to kind of really explore how we build a union that meets the needs of young hospitality workers in the digital age. And so how do we build, at the moment, you know, many unions, uh, you, you're either a, a member or you're not. And what happens when your, wait, your wages suddenly tank because you've lost your hours or um, you've got a massive wage theft claim and you need help um, and maybe you've just joined the union? Um, what we're exploring is the idea that, you know, you can move up and down tiers based on what your needs are rather than in or out. So we can keep supporting workers throughout throughout their, their career in hospitality and their different needs along that along that way. So what we've got is a sort of basic entry-level campaign membership. There's a standard membership that includes access to mobilize our our um, our our, um, our app that provides round-the-clock support. And then there's um, a, a higher level of union membership that allows workers to actually go back and do historical wage theft claims, which is something we've never offered before. And they get access to union lawyers and what we know is that, you know, people want things at different times and this approach allows us to cater to the things workers want and need when they want it. Sounds fantastic to me. Everybody, Everybody's familiar with the various types of subscriptions you can get now for just about any kind of service and they're 
this sort of mass tailoring, mass customization, where you where you get what you need for the stage of life you're at or the stage of your career you're at or the level of support or assistance or help that you need. Uh, and people, you know, are you finding this is um, really addressing the needs of, of workers in the industry? Well, it's early days at this stage, but, I mean, I suppose what we are seeing is that workers are joining at, at, at each each level. So there is a real right. interest in... In, in in each of those different levels um, and people using them kind of, I guess, how we thought they might, you know, people who don't need a lot of support from the union feel like the, the, like the entry-level campaign membership is right for them because they want to be in the union or maybe they're just only working a few hours each week and that it makes sense to them. And then people who, who you know, they're previously their, their only alternative would be to go to some sort of law firm um, to, to get help with like a major wage theft claim from at a previous employer are now coming and joining our plus membership, uh, which is our highest level. And they're able to get access to union lawyers to help them with those historical wage theft claims. Um, and that's an area, you know, which has been basically monopolized by these corporate sharks. Mm. Um, you're seeing them sort of proliferate online now. Um, and we're, you know, really pleased to be able to, I guess, um, square up to that to that to that industry and actually provide a union alternative that that is fair um, and that um, helps workers um, and empowers them to fight back and win. That's fantastic because a lot of those sort of uh, shark type lawyers only take on those cases for quite substantial percentages of people's back pay if they win. It, it's a pretty it's a pretty um, pretty shady part of uh, of industrial law sometimes those back pay claims absolutely and they have yeah they do have you know and people are charging you know huge amounts of money and um with questionable service levels you know and they're marketing themselves as these sort of fake unions and it is really incumbent on our movement to think about how we can we can square up to that you know um but i guess there is a gap there uh, and we we need to figure out how we address that. That's great to see. It's great to see, Tim. Is there anything else you want the listeners of the week on Wednesday to to know about the industry, about the sector, the work that's going on, things that you think you know people really need to know this? Because I think there's a lot of information here that I think will be new for some of the people who listen to our show. I think it's important for hospitality workers to you know, that the community understand that this is a really difficult time for them. They've gone through an absolute horrendous time with COVID. Um, you saw the industry meltdown in March last year uh, where people just suddenly lost all their ships um, and were plunged into poverty overnight. And it was a really sort of eye-opening experience for, for a lot of workers uh, where they saw just, just how sort of precarious casual work and insecure work and in this industry is lost a huge number of workers who probably will never come back um, because they've been so burnt. Um, and the workers that remain are really, I suppose, they have a clearer sense of like that casual work, insecure work is is toxic. Um, but more, I guess, immediately as well is that they're under, under more pressure than ever before. Um, you know, there aren't that many workers out there. Employers are screaming for workers suddenly. Um, it's probably easier to get paid properly at the moment. 
but it is a really stressful time because people are checking for vaccination status, which they, you know, is important. We recognise how important it is that everyone is vaccinated, but often employers aren't putting on extra people. Um, so it's just putting more pressure on the existing staff. So I guess as we move into this Christmas period, remember just how much pressure hospitality workers are under, how toxic some of the employers that they're dealing with are, um, cut them as much slack as possible, treat them with respect, and also support the employers that that treat workers with yeah with dignity and respect and pay them properly by using fairplate.org.au. Thanks so much, Tim. No worries. Love your program. Thank you so much for having us on. That's just such fascinating work that they're doing. I think sometimes we think that the boss can use technology so much better than we can, but there's United Workers Union, there's Tim, there's the workers, you know, in very insecure employment, facing all sorts of awful challenges. I mean, let's be fair, like that issue of sexual harassment in hospitality is absolutely shocking. And the idea that you're not only sort of expected to weather that as like a workplace health and safety risk, but also exist in this perpetually strung out, insecure environment, it's it's appalling. And it is little wonder that hospitality workers are organising with such intensity and passion because enough is enough. And to have the tools like for the UWU to do this kind of work and go, actually, we can use these tools to help workers is transformative and exceptional and made possible by the workers and the workplace delegates and the activists and the organisers who are, are making this happen. It's great. Like, it's so inspiring. It really is. It's so innovative. You know, we know the businesses change their business models to make labour costs, that is, the money we get as workers, cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And so to see us using those those tools in a new way to organise and to bring together a community of workers, not just a workplace of workers, is so inspiring. So, yeah, absolutely. Get onto that Fair Plate site that uh, Tim talked about and check it out because I think it's really worthwhile. We use it all the time Absolutely. because we're like that, because we love boycotting businesses that treat workers badly. Ben and I get up in the morning and think about who are we boycotting today? <laughs> who does not deserve our money? And let me tell you, the ethical satisfaction of not giving money to a bad business is like Christmas every day. Absolutely. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this very special episode of The Week on Wednesday. We will be back to regularly scheduled programming with Ben doing The Weekend Wrap on Sunday. And obviously, we will be back together with the regular format of The Week on Wednesday next week. But if you have programs that you'd like us to do, conversations you'd like us to have, we love hearing ideas from our audience because it's our audience who've been promoting the show and expanding like our reach. And we love hearing from you. We exist to create content for you so tell us what you want yeah let us know let us know what you thought of this episode as well whether you think uh this kind of format works it's been an interesting experience for us certainly something very different obviously want to thank michelle o'neill president of the actu uh we want to thank julia fox the national assistant secretary of the sda and tim Pedersen from hospital voice uh powered by the united workers union really great discussions we really appreciated your time and all power to your campaigns remember people join your union join your union get involved in these things and we can win more secure work and make sure that we have the time and the space and the energy and the resources to care for each other i think yeah. that's so fundamental 
Yes, yes, it is important, isn't it? Love you, Vanny. I love you too. You're the best. Bye. Bye.